At Kroger, we believe it takes the right team to bring you the freshest produce. That's why we partner with farmers who grow only the best. And that level of teamwork means better, fresher options time and time again. Working with farmers is what it takes to be fresh for everyone. Kroger, fresh for everyone. When you're a Boost member, you get free delivery, double fuel points, and lots more. Sign up at Kroger.com slash Boost. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st Century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. And welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective. I am, in fact, the host, Kevin Randall. Before I bring on my guest, Blair McKenzie Blake, to talk about the Yende letters and all that ancillary stuff, I wanted to uh, point out, I have just put up on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com a brief article about the um, Pascagoula abduction. As you know, I'm not a fan of abduction. But there's some things about this that are very intriguing. And one of the things was that Calvin Parker said on this program a couple of times that there were other witnesses to the, the to the abduction back in uh, 1973. And I asked him, you know, was there documentation showing that? And he said, yes. And I found out what he meant basically was newspaper articles that were published at the time that really didn't have any names. But as I was studying something else, I came across a document from uh, Kiesler Air Force Base dated October 12, 1973. And it was a synopsis of the Air Force investigation of the uh, whether there was contamination, radioactive contamination on Hickson and Parker after their experiences on board the UFO. And on that paper were the lists, were the names of two men who had seen the abduction. Um, a fellow named Larry Booth, I believe, and a another fellow whose name escapes me, and I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget it, and I don't have that paper. Anyhow, the names were on the... Um, document dated October 12, 1973. So what we have are two names of people who saw the abduction or parts of the abduction at the time it was taking place back in 1973. And the Air Force was involved a little bit in the investigation. It was after Blue Book had closed, so they weren't officially investigating it. Uh, Hickson and Parker had been taken out to the Air Force base to see if they had been contaminated by radiation. That's why they were out there. But there's a list of the officers who were involved in that. There was a um, not an interrogation, a question and answer period, a discussion of what they had uh, seen and what they had done. But it's, it's, it's just a short little piece on the blog, and it explains all this and gives the names of the people who were involved, and there's several different people there. So you might want to take a look at that when you get a chance. I'm going to be joined here by Blair McKenzie Blake, um, who is the author of several books, including two novels, The Othering and The Paragon Junk with a third projected for the summer of 2022. 
Other works include I Jinx, a collection of occult prose poems, The Wickedest Books in the World, Confessions of an Alistair Crowley Bibliophile, issued in three impressions, The Curious Diary Entries of Verity Periton Pennington, sorry, a short story and remember the future of which he is a co-author. I found that using names of books that are complicated are sometimes problematic. I try to keep my name, the names of my books simple, but that's just me. <laughs> no offense, no offense. Uh, he has contributed essays, 10 volumes of anthology, Dark Lord, Daily Grail Publishing, as well as numerous esoteric uh, themed magazines, including the Co-SM Journal, Subrosa, Silk, Silk Milk, and Drago Burt's Revenge. Uh, for over 22 years, he's been a writer and content manager at uh, www.toolband.com and www.dannycarry.com. His hobbies include collecting UFO-related books, of which he currently has over 850 volumes in his private collection. He resides in Las Vegas, Nevada. Blair McKenzie Blake, welcome to A Different Perspective. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Quite a struggle to get you on the program today, wasn't it? Old technology, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I brought you on because uh, I had seen something that you had published or something you'd said about having caught, gotten a copy of the Vero Manufacturing uh, book that was an outgrowth of the Allende letters. And I thought we'd talk about that because I had some experience in that as well. I think it would be interesting. Uh to begin with, can you give us a little bit of background on what the Allende letters were and what this book was that you managed to find a, a, an original copy of? Sure. Uh, in 1955, a ufologist named um, Morris K. Jessup wrote a book called The Case for the UFO. And the book itself is an early example of paleo contact, ancient astronauts. Uh, although most of the books, or a lot of the books written at that time in the 50s, in the mid-50s, were contactees. He tried to be a bit more scientific, uh, although he fell short a little bit because he based a lot of his material on Fortean phenomena. And, uh, of course, there are more prosaic explanations for many of that, you know, these falls of organic matter, things such like that. Uh, nowadays, we have a, a better idea of some of these things. But anyway, uh, to increase sales, the book didn't sell that well. Bantam issued a, issued a paperback version in 1955, the same book, The Case for the UFO. And it was a copy of this that was mailed to the Office of Naval Research. And I think that was in about 1956, if I'm correct. And uh, it was addressed to Admiral Firth and uh, it said, Happy Easter on the cover. And what it was, it was a marked up copy of The Case for the UFO that intrigued several of the personnel at the uh, Office of Naval Research, as you know, uh, Sherby, one of them, Hoover, Ritter, these officers were intrigued enough by the, the marginal notations that they called in Jessup to say, you know, what's going on here? Uh, do you recognize any of the, is this, any of this makes sense? Because what the, what the notes had done has completely transformed Jessup's original book and they seemed to have all the answers to all the questions posed in the book. And they were also written in a very bizarre phraseology, a pseudo-scientific jargon that was uh, very mystifying to everybody involved. Uh, was it deranged ramblings of somebody? That was the question. 
but it seemed to be written by three different individuals. At first, they believed that because of the three different colors of ink that were involved. Uh, we now know it was a single person. It was a Lindy that did the entire thing. He turns out to be a what I would call a serial annotator. And uh, that started the whole thing. There was a mistake about this book because of how strange the, the notations, the scribblings were, let alone his peculiar grammatical style. Everything, it just seemed so alien to the people that were reading it at the time. Well, one of the things I think we need to point out is that this gave rise to the Philadelphia experiment. Wasn't there something in the, the book or the Allende letters? He sent letters uh, to these people as well, which have been published around the, the country and in various books uh, that, that led us to the Philadelphia experiment. So there was some interest in it by the well, officers. Yes, well, exactly. Uh, he, he wrote about like anti-gravitic technology. He did write about things in the case for the UFO that was the genesis for the Philadelphia experiment. Um, but what had happened is that he had sent the same, these letters to, uh, to Jessup. So Jessup recognized, eventually recognized that the writing styles, how bizarre they were, they were similar. So that's how they put two and two together that he, you know, he recognized, he said, I've seen this I've seen this before, and that was in a couple of the letters that were written, which were on the same line, real similar to the uh, to the uh, notations in the Barrow edition. So he was claiming, or it seemed he was claiming inside knowledge into what was going on in the world of UFOs and where things were coming from and how it was going, and these were answering questions that a lot of people in all circles had uh, about well, uh, the flying saucers. Well, he claimed to be a witness to this ship disappearing, this naval destroyer disappearing. He said at the end, when he finally turned himself in, so to speak, that he was frightened by what Jessup was saying. And uh, that's one of the things that I found fascinating about the, about the book, the notations, is that it has a, a similar uh, tone to it as the so-called men in black. In other words, how they talk in a very uh, stilted speech, how they're described as you know, they're very unusual characters. And it's similar, the handwriting and the notations themselves in the uh, in the Vero edition are like that. And it's kind of brings, it's kind of humorous because both the MIB and Allende were trying to say, they were trying to, you know, discredit everything. And, and they didn't want this to be, bring attention to it. And of course, it invariably brought more attention to it, just like the MIB when they come to uh, somebody that's claimed to have seen a, a UFO their presence is stranger than the sighting itself often, and it brings more attention to what they were trying to discredit. Same with the uh, case for the UFO, Varro edition. So you, you keep mentioning this Varro edition, and I think we need to explain what that is. We're going to have to do that in a moment because I'm going to have to take a break here. Um, we're talking about the Allende letters, and we're talking about um, one of the, I guess, subcategories in the UFO field, because this took on a kind of a life of its own and became a big deal. Brad Steiger did a book called The Andy Letters, The New Startling New Breakthrough or something like that, which got my interest in it as well and uh, got me directly involved in it. And he mentioned Sidney Sherby, who was a uh, captain, or I guess a retired captain in the Navy. And we'll get to my involvement with Sidney Sherby and the viral edition of the book, and we'll all become clear here in just a moment. Um, I'll have additional information. We have some samples of the um, 
underlinings and things like that that Yendi had done in other books, the other books, and I actually did an article which Yendi had done that too. I'll post those to my blog because the uh, illustrations just don't work well in a visual medium like this. So I'll post those to my blog so you can have a, a chance to take a look at those underlinings and what the, they look like. And we'll get a little bit background into who Yendi was and uh, some of the other things he did. I guess he had a habit of annotating everything, and we'll, we'll get into all of that in just a moment. Anyhow, the stuff will be up at my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And since we just passed the 75th anniversary of the Roswell UFO crash, take a look at Understanding Roswell. I think it'll make a, some of that uh, controversy, make it make more sense to uh, you for understanding it. We'll be back right after this, so please stick around. And we are back. I'm talking to... Uh, Blair McKenzie Blake. We're talking about the Allende letters and things like that. And uh, you mentioned, have mentioned a couple of times, the viral manufacturing. Uh, give me a little bit of background about that. What, what does that mean exactly, the viral edition of the book? Okay, well, uh, once that marked up book arrived, the people, personnel at the Office of Naval Intelligence decided to go ahead and make copies for, uh, I guess, to distribute amongst themselves uh, that included the entire text of Jessup's book, but also all of the uh, underscoring, the uh, interjections, all the marginal notations uh, were to be included in that. It was a, a laborious task. Uh, back in those days, uh, they could do it. It'd be, be done real easy today, but get everything, the notations in red ink, in red print, they had to, you know, really type everything up. They had to use stencils to get the red. And the, a true Vero edition, you know, today it's easy to find. But a true one was really difficult to find because they originally probably made, it, it depends. But some people think, the most I've read is 25 copies. Uh, that's all they did. And then in uh, 1973, I believe it was, Gray Barker, Saucerian Press, did a facsimile of it with the only difference being they didn't put the red underscoring in because it got the uh, lines were too close to the text and it made it too hard to do back then with this little office copier, this duplicator, whatever. Um, so that's the real question though. Why did they, and maybe you know the answer, I don't know it. Why did they, why did they go to all this trouble, a defense contractor uh, involved in classified operations. Why would they go to the trouble to do this? Was it just a hobby? Was I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> okay, I will, since you asked. Uh, what he's referring to is I actually had an opportunity to visit with Sidney Sherby. When I was in the Army living in Texas, I'd read uh, Brad Steiger's book, of the, the Great Breakthrough, the Allende Letters, New Startling Breakthrough. And in it, they mentioned a fellow that Brad Steiger was in communication with who had written to the office, uh, to the uh, the chairman of uh, the head of the naval operations, the chief of naval operations, finally got it figured out here, chief of naval operations, who's the number one uh, admiral in the Navy, asking about the Yendi letters. And he got a, a letter back and told him how to get a copy of the book and all of this sort of thing. And I thought, well, if this guy can do it, so can I. So I wrote to the uh, chief of naval operations and got a letter back. And I think what this tells me is that they had got numerous queries about this and had a stock supply, uh, stock reply available. And it said it was the copy of the book was reproduced by Varro Manufacturing in Garland, Texas. Well, I lived in Mineral Wells, Texas, uh, stationed in Fort Walters. 
And uh, Garland, Texas is there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So it wasn't that far away and mentioned this Sydney Sherby. So I called Tuvaro Manufacturing and found that Sydney Sherby worked there. And we chatted for a moment and I set up an interview. So one afternoon I went down and met with Sydney Sherby in his office and to ask him about this whole thing. He had a copy of the book. He said they made 25 copies, by the way. So I'm I'm going with 25 because Sidney Sherby said they did. I would go with that too because it's so damn hard to find. But he told me he had originally had five copies, but he only had one left, and he showed it to me. Had it to me. He says, "Now, if you have a way of copying this, I'll I'll loan it to you." Well, this was back in boy, and I hate to say the dates, but back in the 1960s, 1970s, early 1970s, and. Um, there were, we had a library, of course, on post, and they had a copy machine, and you, you could make 10 copies at a time. So I would go in there periodically and make my 10 copies until I got a copy of the Navarro manufacturing version. It does not have the distinction between the red and the blue. It's all uh, black and white copy, but it's made from one of the, um, the original books, and then I returned it to Sidney Sherby. One of the things he wanted to make clear was that the Navy wasn't interested in the book. They had done this on their own nickel. He said, Sherby said that he and Hoover asked about working on it and finding out a little bit more about it. And the, the answer from the superiors were, sure, you can do it as long as it doesn't involve any Navy resources. So they produced the 25 copies of the book. And as you say, in today's environment, it's very easy to find. I've got a, a, a copy of it where it's black text and blue for the annotations that was put out by some French organization. So I've, yeah. I've got that as well. And I did at one point, and I'll put this up on my blog, I, I put together just one page, a sample page with the black ink and the red ink and that sort of thing because I could do it on a computer and it was very easy to do. Uh, but I didn't want to do the whole thing. So the point was um, Sherby and Hoover and I, I guess a number of their friends were interested in the book, but the Navy itself was not interested. The fact they had, were naval officers kind of followed them into this investigation. Uh, so that is where the Varro manufacturing copy of the book came. Now, uh, what possessed you to look for an original copy of the book, the Varro manufacturing well, book? Well, I had a modest UFO collection in the 1980s, and uh, I asked myself, what's the rarest UFO book? I just wanted to have a rare one. I, I collected the vintage ones that were hard to find. And uh, back in those days, you know, there was no e-environment. There was no uh, AB books. There was none of that that was around. So all you had were these little mail order businesses, or you could go to a book fair and ask the a seller, a guy that, you know, owned a bookshop, used bookshop. Anyway, I didn't get anywhere. And one day I read an article by John Keel, and it happened to be about the rarest UFO book in existence. And that was the, uh, the uh, Faro edition of the case for the UFO. Uh, so like you, in 1991, I was at a book fair and I was talking to a prominent seller that I'd bought a lot of books before, from before. And he said he just bought a huge UFO collection. And he said it was really weird because there was, there was one standout. One book that the wife of the uh, husband who is deceased wouldn't didn't want to part with, and I said, "Well, what was it?" He says, "Just a ratty looking Xerox copy that had funny little things written in it." And I said, uh, "Like what?" And he said, "Well, it had names of three people." I said, "Mr. A, Mr. B, and Jimmy." And he said, "Yes, that's it." And he and I said, "So it's just a Xerox copy, though? You're sure?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said. 
I'll give you a hundred dollars for it. He didn't have it with him. Uh, he was going to mail it to me. So the next day I was on a family vacation on the other side of the uh, country in uh, on Oak Island in uh, not the Oak Island that's in uh, Mahone Bay, but Oak Island, Outer Barrier Island in North Carolina. And uh, when I got there, remember, there's always been uh, bad luck associated with anybody that has a copy of this. Houses get broken into, they disappear in the mail. Once I got to North Carolina, I said, wait a minute, the house has a name, the nautical theme, but it doesn't have an address on it. How's the, how's my guy gonna, how's the mail guy gonna get it to me? I panicked. So I went chasing around the mail trucks and uh, got it right off of the truck. <laughs> Convinced the guy to give it to me. I said, I'll tell you exactly what it is and everything. So finally in 1991, I had a Xerox copy. It wasn't until uh, many years later that I got a uh, Saucerian reprint, which itself is really rare. Spent $500 on it. And actually I did, somebody bought it for me. But uh, it has the red print too. The only difference between it and the uh, the true, the original one, the 25, is is the red underscoring. Uh, there's no Saucerian preface, no, no Gray Barker mentioning, uh, and it's a little sharper. Uh, that was my kind of first clue, was that the, the lettering on the cardstock was a little sharper. And uh, so I said, well, this, you know, because Barker was just essentially making Xeroxes too. Uh, and uh, so it took 35 years to find one. And what I after a while I began to think this thing doesn't really exist as far as it's just Gray Barker up to his tricks again. Uh, he'd done this in the past. He'd got like stationery and he from the uh, government. He sent letters to contactees. Uh, you know he was a he was a prankster. He was a good researcher, but he was a prankster. And I just started thinking, you know, he he just came up with this whole thing. He concocted it. And uh, I was proven wrong. He didn't. It really did exist when I found the one. And that when I found it, I there is no there was none other on the internet anywhere. There's no photos. And once I posted my photo on Toolbank, Google took it a day later, put it on their site or you know in their images. Uh, so it, it is. I can say it really is very difficult to find. An original. Yeah, so actually, I, and I know, and I know you, you recalled me earlier, earlier I know it existed because I had actually held a copy in my hand uh, from Sidney Sherby. So there you yeah. go. Uh, but it, um, I think, I, it alleged to uh, strange disappearances too. I think it, in in the case of the case for the UFO, um, Jessup talked about strange disappearances and things like that. When you talked about the Fortean phenomenon, uh, I think they talked about the disappearance of the star. Was it the star aerial, the stardust? Stardust, I think it was, was in sight of the airport in uh, the capital of Chile, and it vanished into thin air. And, and what happened to that? And we now know what had happened to that aircraft. It uh, flew into a mountain uh, long before it got there. It's uh, the story for those of you who are interested in following up on this. Want more information? I did an article on the on my blog about it. And just type stardust into the blog search engine, and you can read about the discovery of the. Stardust, uh, around the turn of the century, they, they found the wreckage as it was revealed by a, a, a glacier that they had crashed into. But the book was filled with that sort of thing, not just UFO stuff. And I think the uh, reason that everybody was interested in it was, as you had mentioned, is it suggested some kind of an inside knowledge of it, but that was never borne out. Did you do any research into who uh, Allende was? Did you take it that far? Yeah, um, but... 
the research, what I found that he was, uh, well, there's several things. He was, a lot of people thought he was just a drifter that, like I said, a serial annotator. He'd done other books in the past. I might have a book from 1950 about uh, ancient astronauts that is marked up by him. I haven't been, I can't prove it, but I've matched it and it looks pretty good to me. It's in three different color inks. Had, some of the letters are dead on. That was his thing though. He could write with different styles of handwriting. So it looked like different people doing it. Um, and then, then there's the, the uh, side that he, did, I think he had some kind of identification showing that he was in the Navy. Maybe he was on one of those ships during that time. So that's a, that's another mystery. Who well, was me, he? What do you know? Let me interrupt you there because I'm going to have to take a break. When we come back, we'll take a, take a little bit of a uh, look into the history of um, Carlos Allende and who he was because I found a great deal more information about him. And I think it's kind of interesting to put this whole thing together. And it's a way of understanding the Yende letters and the real lack of importance that they have to the UFO field, if you will. We'll be back right after this. So please stick around. And we are back. As I've said before, I am here with Blair McKenzie Blake. We're talking about the Yende letters and Carlos Allende. And, uh, about the background of Carlos Allende, and I, I get the impression you haven't done a lot of research into his background. Um, no. Tur turns out his, his name was Carl Allen. Yeah, I knew that. Okay, and he was from Pennsylvania. And the interesting right. thing is a fellow named Robert Gorman had uh, looked into the background and was chasing Carlos Allende and Carl Allen down. And it turned out that Gorman lived like around the block from the Allen house. So his search was right there in his own neighborhood as he was looking for it. And that was the one thing you, you mentioned that he did a lot of annotating books. He was a serial annotator. Uh, and they said the same thing, you do the same thing with birthday cards and Christmas cards and letters and all kinds of things. So he'd pick up his, his hand and he would just um, annotate everything. And I, like I said, I did an article about the Yende letters because of course I had had that experience with Sidney Shirby back in the, the 1970s when official UFO was going. And, uh, Apparently, Allende found it and uh, annotated the the uh, magazine article and then sent it to the publisher, and he sent me a copy of it as well. So I have a copy of an article I wrote about the Allende letters that Carlos Allende actually annotated, which was kind of funny. Were you aware that he had visited with the APRO people in uh, yes. 1980 and, and signed a statement that he had made the whole thing up? Yes, I was aware of that. Absolutely. But he did say he also added that he did make up the part about the Philadelphia experiment, though. He said that did happen. He just said that the other things that he had said, because he was fearful of Jessup's research into the unified field uh, phenomena, so, you know, the unified Einstein's uh, unified field theory. And so that's why he did it. Again, that's that whole MIB thing I was bringing up. But yeah, I was aware of that. Uh, what I thought was really interesting about the guy, and this is what I concluded after when I wrote my articles for Dark Lore, was that he uh, had sort of created a new art form. He had transformed Jessup's book into something. He made it more exciting. And, and I always wondered, like, why did he not just pursue a career as a sci-fi writer unless he needed that symbiotic relationship between something that existed that he could add on to? Maybe he couldn't come up with anything, could only add on to things. I don't know. But it just seems, you know, if he did all this, stuff, he did, he did say the the tone of the Vero edition is so strange, well, especially back then, maybe not today, that uh, he would have had a career as a uh, sci-fi writer <laughs> at the time. 
Well, it is very difficult to come up with the original material and it's very easy to kind of add on to things like that, as, as you say. Uh, I was interested in the, um, the whole thing, of course, as, as I said, because of Brad Steiger, but in talking to Sherby and talking to Robert Gorman and talking to some of the other people, it, it becomes clear to me that the whole thing was an invention by Allende. It's now part of the ufological lore simply because of other people's uh, interest in what was going on. And I think Robert uh, Gorman kind of pursued it from the same sort of um, attitude that you have. He was looking for answers and looking for why this was done. Well, let me just add this. A lot of the mystique was fueled for the case for the UFO by the suicide of Jessup in 1959, I believe it was, or might've been, yeah, 1959. Yeah. He, uh, he committed suicide and that brought a lot of people thinking, wow, he must've, there must be something to this. He, was, he didn't commit suicide, he was killed, they thought. And in fact, a, a lady uh, wrote a book about that very thing called The Jessup Dimension, which uh, was annotated <laughs> as well by our friend. But uh, it, she sort of took a, a psychic approach, like, I know he didn't kill himself. He's in a holding pattern. His spirit is still hovering over. And she would go to the park where this happened in Florida. And every on the anniversary of it, she would make contact with him and try to get the answers and like, and then she did her own research and she found out that during some of these uh, Philadelphia experiment years, you know, that time frame, that he, that Jessup may have been involved in uh, covert government uh, work. So, you know, people don't want to let it go, the whole thing. So they're finding more, you know, there's more to find out whether or not there is anything to it, I don't know. Well, I know that Jessup had a, a government, he had a PhD um, in astronomy, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, he was very uh, highly educated man, but he couldn't find work in his field. And he took a government job where he basically showed up for work and they didn't have anything for him to do. So he would bring in newspapers uh, to read and they started reading books and then he about UFOs. And then he started to write his own book about UFOs, which... Uh, yeah, kind of sparked this whole thing, I suppose. Well, there's a debate, debate about how educated he really was, how if he had degrees in astronomy, things like that, or if he, you know, there, there's a there's a whole debate about him as well out there about his credentials and everything. But he did write in a more scientific manner for the time, at least. His his books were try had a more serious tone to them. And this wasn't this wasn't uh, somebody like the who was the guy from. Uh, uh, Missouri, Buck Nelson, a contactee that said that the aliens were really concerned. We couldn't get into the Galactic Federation because our cans said pork and beans when they're really far more uh, beans than pork. And the aliens were really worried about that. That was the kind of stuff that was going on at the same time Jessup was writing his, his stuff. You know, you had all these contactees, you know, that were worried about the uh, atomic bomb or whatever. So anyway. Well, yeah. Yeah, the contactees were big in the 1950s. There was, um, uh, what's his face out on Palomar? I don't know why. I can't remember. Adamski, George Adamski. Yes, thank you, George Adamski. And then George Van Tassel. And Adamski was talking about the Venusians, and Van Tassel was talking about the Martians. And what yeah. I found interesting is neither Adamski nor um, Van Tassel would say anything bad about the other guy. Uh, but they would say, well, you can't believe anything those Martians say or watch out for the Venusians. You have to be careful when you're talking to the Venusians. So they would kind of attack each other through their contacts. Uh, 
And well, they could have. They might have been government agents. <laughs> they might have been government. It might have been an intel operation uh, to make it look like they were probably were con artists, but it might have been, you know, to discredit ufology. That might have been the idea behind some of these contactees, at least. I, I think for the contactees, I don't really think it was government disinformation. I think it was more of the um, them grabbing for the spotlight. There's a quote from Adamski made a number of years ago that uh, was really annoyed about the um, uh, prohibition because uh, uh, he was involved in bootlegging. And if he said it, if it hadn't been pro 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 prohibition, he wouldn't have gotten into this UFO nonsense. So, uh, Well, yeah, his, his, his book, uh, I forget which one, he had a few, uh, originally was written as a science fiction novel. He just, then he, when the UFO thing came along, he turned it into a, now it's a book about what really happened with uh, my contacts. Uh, but the book exists. It's very rare. Uh, Pioneers of Space is the book. And it's the same thing. It's the same story, but it was clearly written as a science fiction story. So, uh, yeah, you, you don't know. I mean, I, I can't tend to agree with you that these guys were just basically trying to make a buck. And it was it was the thing of the time to do. But then you get guys like Bethram who... Uh, you know, he had the female captain, Aura Reigns, and uh, the uh, the aliens dressed like Greyhound or Trailways bus drivers. And but he said he saw her, the same woman, uh, a little bit later, and she didn't look at him. She wouldn't. She wouldn't acknowledge him. Almost like that's what made me wonder: like, is this some type of an intel thing? You know. But the know. the other thing when you mentioned that, uh, Doctor Frank Stranges. In his book, uh, Strangers at the Pentagon, mm -hmm. which was another contactee and that sort of thing. I think we kind of got off the track here, but uh, the contactee sort of, uh, I guess, meld into this whole sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, with, yeah. The, with the Allende letters, though, uh, it sort of sparked its own subset of ufological research. I, you've tapped into some of that? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, what what you have to give me a little bit more i'm not sure i mean it's, well, it's, i was i mean you 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 um you've done some research in the background of Allende. you know a little bit about the background of uh -huh. of and that sort of thing and you chased down a varo manufacturing copy of the book i wouldn't have thought you could found one in this day and age because there were so few of them actually published um although there are a lot of simulations out there yeah i just i just uh wondered it, have you done a great deal of work into looking into the background or is it just kind of an ancillary thing of collecting the UFO it's, it's, yeah it's just to see what i have to what i collected and and like there are there are books that are related to uh the case of the, of the whole story gray barker did several books there, there's several out there that are uh, all about that edition and uh <laughs> did have you looked have you read the book the philadelphia experiment by um berlitz and moore Yes. yes. And what did, what did you think of that book? Well, um, personally, I thought Moore was a pretty good researcher. I'd heard him speak in the uh, 80s, early 90s. And, you know, the whole thing he got involved in with uh, working, you know, that whole Benowitz affair and everything like that. Um, and, there, and there seemed to be, there's actually some mistakes in that Philadelphia Experiment book from the lady who was uh, investigating on her own, the Jessup Dimension woman, who uh, had 
falsely reported a his, Jessup's blood alcohol level at the time, and they went ahead and published that in the uh, Philadelphia Experience. It's a it's an entertaining book. Uh, I, I to be honest with you, I haven't really followed the Philadelphia Experiment that much. It just seems too far fetched to me. Uh, you know, it's it's I'm more like some of the people like Shot Filet that say it was just camouflage. You know how to how to uh, make the ship a little stealthy. It wasn't really about making the ship literally disappear. It was, you know, degaussing and things like that. So I'm not too familiar on all that. It's, to me, that's sort of outside of what I do. Well, supposedly it, it was uh, to make the ship invisible to radar, not to teleport. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It had that's to do right. with, as you mentioned, had to do with the, the incidents with radar. Well, we're going to have to take another quick break here. Uh, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about the Yende letters and see if we can solve some of the problems and maybe steer people away from the Yende letters into the legitimate areas of UFO research. Uh, although these these kind of side paths are fun to fun to go down because of the things you can find. And in today's environment, it's much more easy to do with the Internet. You can look an awful lot of things up on the Internet, but you have to be careful. You have to look at all the sources. You can't just look at one or two of them. You have to look at all the sources and then decide for yourself, which is the the uh, pathway to the truth. As I say, we'll be back right after this talking about the uh, Philadelphia Experiment, the Allende Letters and UFOs. So please stick around. And we are back. I'm talking to... Blair McKenzie Blake. We're talking about the Allende letters. And I suppose the question to be asked here is, do you believe what uh, Allende wrote in the book? Do you believe the information was accurate? Was it complete and total just fantasy on his part? I believe it was complete fantasy on his part. Uh, there are some of his scribblings are like, for instance, uh, Jessup, I told you he brought in like 40 in phenomena. He brought in cryptids like uh, the the hoof prints of the Jersey Devil, okay, so-called Jersey Devil hoof prints. His explanation was these were measure markers, idling measure markers. Uh, food falling from the sky, organic matter, was cleaning out the mothership, monthly cleaning of the mothership. He took it as far as to say that uh, some of the people that disappear from the earth uh, are taken by these uh, aliens and... Uh, they don't have a way to bury them once they're done if something goes wrong in experiment so that they just chop them up and throw them down. That's what we get, these balls of organic uh, of uh, material meat. So there's a lot of craziness there that's just obvious. Uh, it's like he just, it's a different art form is what I was trying to say. That He enhanced Jessup's, he turned Jessup's book into something more exciting. Uh, and... Uh, that's pretty much what I think he did. I don't. I don't. I did. I don't take any of it seriously. So you're you're saying he it wasn't malicious on his part. It was just the way right. he was. It was just his thing. That's what I think. That would be okay. my opinion. Well, yeah, I, I think that I, I get the same impression. It really wasn't malicious on his part, but it was something he felt he had to do. I think it interesting that he confessed to um, Jim Lorenzen at APRO that he had made the whole thing up. Um, and then he was supposedly going to Mexico for treatment for cancer and thought he was dying of cancer. And then they supposedly cured him in Mexico. When he came back to APRO, uh, he kind of changed his story. He left some uh, clothing, some, some belongings there with APRO for safekeeping and never retrieved them, according to what Jim Lorenzen told me about it. So. Yeah, he retracted what he said. Or it, he retracted yeah. most of it. Uh, 
you know, he was good at what he did. There, there is a strange tone to what he wrote in there. If you, if you actually read all of the marginal notations, it's pretty crazy stuff, you know, at least in the 1950s it was. It wouldn't be today. I think it would just, I don't think a, a new generation would think much of it. Well, I th one of the things I think we need to stress here um, is that the rule has been, or the story has always been, that the Navy was very interested in the, the book when it arrived at the Office of Naval Research. And it turns out the Navy wasn't interested, but guys in the Navy were. So it's a very fine distinction to make there, but it wasn't a Navy project. They did it on their own. And as long as it didn't involve Navy funds and Navy time, the Navy didn't care what they did. And yeah, the fact yeah. that when the Navy followed them. And I, I've had a similar experience as, as an Army officer and later an Air Force officer says it's ha actually happened. Uh, we were investigating civilian-wise a uh, case in Iowa about a UFO landing. And I was in the Air Force Reserve at the time, and I had a base sticker on my car. And uh, somebody saw the sticker for Richard Gebauer Air Force Base and thought it was an official Air Force investigation. And we were in civilian clothes. I mean, obviously, we were in civilian clothes because we weren't doing it as part of the Air Force. But that kind of followed us along. And there was a report that came out in the newspapers that the Air Force had investigated this case. And it wasn't the Air Force. It was me uh, as a member of the Air Force Reserve investigating the case on my own time. And I think I sent a report to Admiral about it, as a matter of fact. So we have to make that distinction. So you didn't include that in your book that the Air Force was investigating when it was you? No, I did. No, I did not. If it was if it was me investigating uh, I made it clear that it was it was me investigating it. But it's, it, the point simply is that kind of thing followed uh, Sidney Sherby and, and Hoover. Uh, and Sherby was very candid with me about the whole thing. He said they he found it interesting. They found the book very interesting. And that was why they produced the 25 copies. Um, and as I say, you know, I'll put some of that up on my blog for those of you who are interested to take a look at it and some of the underlinings. And uh, the, the problem with the uh, magazine article that has annotations in it. I looked at that the other day and I was going to send you copies of those, of those, but it's just almost illegible. I might try to scan it again and get better, better copy, but it's an old Xerox type copy and it's got a red reddish tinge to it. So it didn't copy very well, but it's interesting only because Allende is the one who had made the annotations and one point he had he'd set up a box and he called damn lies. And I'm thinking, no, that's the absolute truth. pal. <laughs> Well, the bottom line to me about it is it's just a really hard book to collect. So that's why, that's why I did it primarily. It's the, it's the hard book to find, and I want the rarest ones that I can find. Maybe it's not the rarest. I don't know. But it took 35 years to find it and try to find another one. Probably, well, won't, probably will show up now that I found this one. I was thinking the next day another one will show up. It's happened before. Well, what's interesting is I actually have a Xerox copy of the original. It's not as good as yours, but uh, I have an that was made from the original. I can testify to that because I'm the one that made the copy from it, and Sidney Sherby gave it to me. So it's kind of interesting. But what you say it sounds like the uh, the coin collector who collects Lincoln pennies, and the the Holy Grail Lincoln penny is the 1909 SVDB Lincoln penny. That's the one that everybody wants to get, and you're not going to ever find it in circulation. You're going to have to buy it somewhere to to have a have one of those. And, that sounds like kind of what you were doing, looking, just collecting books and following up a little bit with the information. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the in ufology. I, I am interested in it. But this was a book that would I would take seriously. This I just it's that was my collecting thing. It's well, not one of the books I take seriously. 
I think the thing we need to say about, about Jessup's book, and I, I think he wrote another book called The Expanding Case for UFOs, as a matter of fact. But I think the important point is that he collected the information from other books and published it in his own book. Um, and, and an awful lot of that goes on in the UFO field. Somebody writes about a specific event and somebody else writing a book about UFOs includes that event. If there's a mistake in it, uh, that mistake is carried on through all the ne next levels of the books or somebody adds something to it or makes a deduction and everybody else assumes that's correct. And you need to get back to the original sources on some of that to find out what the truth is. Yeah. Uh, he also wrote a book about uh, UFOs in the Bible. So he was, he, he was one of the early proponents of the whole ancient astronaut uh, hypothesis. Definitely writing in, he was writing before Von Dannigan and people like that about these, uh, and, and the book that I mentioned that may or may not have been uh, annotated was from 1950 called Star Guess, all about the Cirrus mystery and Cirrus B, written in 1950. Uh, and I don't know how much, how earlier you can find a book about uh, ancient astronauts than that. I mean, you know, this. Cirrus B is, is the idea that this obscure African tribe worshipped uh, this companion star to Sirius. Yes, the Dogon tribe in Mali, yeah. Africa. They were more, their ceremonies are more geared around Cirrus B, which is virtually invisible, uh, than Cirrus A, which is the brightest star in the night sky. And that's the mystery. Of, and they also seem to understand its trajectory. They know its orbital period. They, in their, encoded in their uh, ceremonies and their mythology are, are uh, very accurate things about the star, its orbit of 50 years, uh, other things. But whether that's, you know, whether or not it's a coincidence or not, it's just, again, as a collector, to find one from 1950, a very rare book called Stargast that also happens to be annotated in the same color ink with, with handwriting that matches, it's pretty good. Well, do you have a copy of the, of the book that is not annotated? Yes. I do. And it, and it is copyright 1950. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I think um, there was a French writer who uh, postulated some of the ancient astronaut materials in the 19, 1954, I think it was. Um, and, and so that kind of sparked the thing and Von Danigan brought it to the forefront with chariots of the gods. And then a lot of people have leaped on the ancient astronaut things. Yeah. Well, I see by the clock on the wall, which is really the iPad with its uh, stopwatch on it, uh, that we're just about out of time here. I want to take, I want to thank you for uh, all the effort to get on the show today. Uh, the audience, of course, doesn't know that we had what well, we went through to make sure everything worked out okay. But I appreciate your your sticking with us and helping us out uh, getting on the program. And it was a very interesting conversation about uh, the Allende letters and how you got involved and your. Um, interest in collecting ufo books so thank uh, you very much uh thanks for having me okay you have a good day that was blair mckenzie blake talking about the end the letters and i think 
when I get into these conversations with people, I mean, I understand what's going on with them and, and it makes sense to me, but I think the audience who may not be as geared to the UFO phenomenon as I am may get somewhat confused. And what I try to do is um, when I put up the, the synopsis of the program is provide either other sources you can link on your computer or other articles I've done about this stuff uh, so that you can get a better picture of what was going on. And I've done some things on, as I said, on the Allende letters. Um, a, a number of times. I've been convinced for literally years that it's a, a hoax, but it's, a, I guess we've determined it's sort of a non-malicious hoax. But I've done a lot of stuff about that. And I have some information uh, on the blog from Robert Gorman and his investigation into Carl M. Allen, which was his birth name. He wasn't really born Carlos Allende. I don't think he was in the Navy. I think he was in the Merchant Marine or something like that. I don't think he actually was in the military service, uh, according to everything that I've been able to find about him. But that is all kind of laid out, and there's links to other articles that talk about this sort of thing. And the book that uh, came out, The Philadelphia Experiment, I've done some things on that. Um, I think there's some things on the blog. I'll take a look about that. But there are problems with the book. Uh, we just briefly touched on. And one of the things was a newspaper article that made me think that they had hoaxed the newspaper article because there's not a single name that you can verify. It comes from an obscure system. Well, the, the local newspaper said that there was a big fight at a tavern downtown and the police were called. Yeah, what tavern? What town? What newspaper? And it, we, we weren't able to find anything like that. I think that's something important to understand as well. Anyway, the point is, I think um, it was interesting that he sought this book out and was able to actually find a copy of the original annotated Barrow edition and that uh, the Yende letters probably aren't going to lead us anywhere and it's taken us off in some strange directions, including movies called The Philadelphia Experiment. Anyway, that's what we have for today. I want to thank you all for stopping by and take a listen and I will be back with another show at some point in time. Thank you. <laughs>